Hannah and Catherine and Carrie's beautiful message is very much the thought of what I'd like to share with you uh, today. Today is Palm Sunday, and I found myself in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 through 10, talking about money on Palm Sunday. And I want to present to you that it is not inappropriate to talk about money on Palm Sunday. And that's going to be part of my argument. The song has already uh, argued that. When I survey the wondrous cross, it demands my soul, my life, my all. If the whole realm of nature was mine, Still, far too inferior price to pay, a gift to give. So, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 through 10, really what I hope, hope to do is just maybe bank on one uh, verse and know that after Easter we will spend uh, more of our time covering that passage and bringing out all that's in this passage, Um, but I will take one aspect of this verse verse, and argue for it with Palm Sunday. So, you remember this book, this letter was written that we might know, according to chapter 3, verse 15, how to behave in God's family which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so that's the point in all these things that we're reading. It is to say, how are we going to promote truth in our community? How are we going to work together as God's family? How are we going to act knowing there's a living God among us? And so he deals with money and how that changes things. And so... In honor of this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10. He had just, in chapter 5, dealt with how to honor widows and care for widows using the muddy resources of the church to take care of, of widows. And then last week we talked about elders and using the money resources and taking care of elders of double honor and what is to be expected of elders uh, within that. And so we go on, chapter 6, verse 1 through 10. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. For those who have believing masters not be, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. What, what are we... We to teach and urge well, what we follow in verses 3 through 10. I'm commanded to urge this to you. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an un- unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. 
Now there is some great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with those, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You may be seated. If you allow me, I would like to elaborate and illustrate verse 10, specifically this morning. I'm not skipping over that which comes before. We will, the Lord willing, talk about verses 1 through 9 in detail. But I want to talk about verse 10 and argue it with the weak events of Palm Sunday. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I was talking with, one, with Mike, a pastor here, and we were talking about what does it look like to be discipled. Every once in a while you might hear someone say, well, I've been discipled by so-and-so. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, well, what does that mean? How do you know when you have been discipled? A quick, brief definition of being discipled and discipling is to become Christ-like. And so you can say, well, I've become Christ-like, which means that you never stop being discipled. It's just that the person God was using either died or there's no longer in your life. But you're still in the process of becoming Christ-like. And so we were first looking at it as, well, what, what do you have to know when you're being discipled? What are the things you're being taught? And we start thinking, through, well, you have to know how to read the Bible. You have to know how to pray. Maybe you know how to share the faith. Maybe you have to know how to uh, defend the faith. But when it comes down to it, how you're being discipled is not revealed in what you know. It's in obedience. How are you being obedient? We started thinking through in other places around the world and, and uh, I said, you know, when a pastor is working with someone in other countries, like some of them, ones I know in, in, in East Asia and other places, they look at areas of obedience where there's a lot of societal pressure to, to not be obedient. And when they're obedient in those areas, for example, like one of the minor, minority people groups and how they bury a father, a mother, whether they're going to go against animistic uh, or past practices, or are they going to do this in a more Christian emphasis, there's a lot of pressure to do it in the ways that the fathers had done it before. And so when a believer steps out and does something different there, then you know that there's some spiritual growth that's happening. And so I started asking, what is, what is in our society in America the places where we feel most pressure to be disobedient in? It's in our materials. It's in our money and our consumerism. And that perhaps we know that we're Christ-like when we are most different in how we deal with money, with the common world. It seemed to be what's on Paul's mind. As he writes, he says, you know what? This is how we're going to behave as a church. This is what it means to be part of God's family to have the living God among us. This is what it's going to be to put out truth as a, as a pillar putting out truth out into our community. This is how we know that's going to happen. Uh, and, and so 
You notice in chapter 3, when he talks about the qualifications of pastors, he says that elders are not to be lovers of money. Very very clear in in chapter 3, verse 3, we see that there's likewise a word given to deacons and says this is to be a similar thing, that we're not greedy for dishonest gain. And then in chapter 5, that we use our resources to... Uh, take care of those who are, are oppressed and, and helpless and, and the widow who has no family around them to take care of them, that we, we take care of these. And then it talks about the elders and, and others. And so this has been a theme throughout uh, in this book. And, and so in chapter 6, much of it is dealing with this. And he says simply, do not be lovers of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And what I want to present to you is that the love of money did not, does not just pierce ourselves, but the love of money pierced Jesus. So go with me to the story of Palm Sunday. We will find an account of that. Uh, let's look in, especially in the book of Mark. The book of Mark. Mark chapter 11. Verses 1 through 9. Is an account of the triumphal entry. Of Jesus Christ. This is fitting. Totally right for us to read. On this day. If I was to ask you. What what did Jesus. Why did he die on the cross? And the Sunday school answer. The one that we've been taught as a child. Is well because of my sin. Because of the sins. And that is absolutely correct. You might say, well, why did Jesus die on the cross? You might say, well, the, the Pharisees and the religious looter, uh, rulers, the temple rulers, brought him to the cross. The Romans were the one who did it. And, and these things are all true. But you'll find that there are certain surface sins that were directing it. Yes, all the sins of the world, but there were some primary motivating sins at that day and time that brought Jesus to the cross. And, and I, wanted, I wanted to associate something with you. I, you know, there, the love of money, we know it's not good as Christians. If you grow up in church, you think, okay, I've heard this before. But still, it's that desire for a comfortable lifestyle. I've shared with you before, it's not wrong to have six-digit incomes. What's wrong is to have a six-digit lifestyle. To say, I'm going to live this way because I can. Because I can. And it's comfortable. And often what comes to my mind when, when money comes in addition to my life, I'm thinking, typically, what, what can I apply this to that will make my life easier? And that's often the scenario we go down. And so the other way around this is, is some of us thinking, well, you know, that, that'd be great, Pastor, but you know what? I've got some serious needs in my life. And so here's the other way this looks is, man, I really hope I get some money. Because if I don't get some money, then I don't have real needs being met. And what I want to present to you there is that God is still your hope. God is still your security. God will use money, but do not replace money for God as your hope and as your security. So this can go both ways, whether you have excess or whether you have deficits, we still can be guilty of lovers of money when we see it as our hope, as our identity, as that which makes our life so much better. Associate that 
little bit of, okay, I can, I can go out and eat a little bit more now. Or I can, I can enjoy this a little bit more. Associate that with what killed Jesus. Okay? Associate that little desire for a little bit extra comfort with what killed Jesus. That's what I'm going to argue for. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 19. We're, we're going to focus on this. Now, now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied and which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of these standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that had cut from the fields. And those who went before them, those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What did it cost people on that Palm Sunday? Simply saying, when you put your cloak down, a cloak was a way of investment in that day and time. Uh, It was a a security. And they're putting their cloaks down for the mule to walk on. It is a way of saying, we lift you up. Hosanna in the highest. And we will sacrifice our praises to you, not just with our words, but laying some investments down, laying some cloaks down for Jesus to walk upon on that Palm Sunday. But notice what he does. The very first thing he does in verse 11, he goes to the temple, to the house of worship that was built to proclaim the name of God. And he goes there, surveys it. And you know what he sees. We're going to read about it in just a little bit. But he goes back and sleeps on it. And Bethany. And on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went and see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard of it. Just as a metaphor, this is a little something that occurs. And he says, trees, figs, trees ought to bear fruit to be consumed by others. Figs often represent Israel. And he says they ought to be bearing fruit for God. And we're going to find that doesn't happen. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple. Now did Jesus know what was going on in the temple? Yes. He saw it the night before. Sometimes we read this and think, oh, Jesus just lost his temper, and so it's okay for every once in a while for me to lose my temper. Listen, Jesus read or saw it the night before. He knew what he was going to do. It's very intentional. It wasn't just a split second losing it. He saw it. He saw it the night before, and he's coming knowing what he's about to see. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold 
pigeons. Listen, basically what you've got here is Jesus looking around and he sees what our text in 1 Timothy says, that these are people who see that maybe godliness is a means to great gain. That Timothy, or that Paul warns us about in Timothy. Jesus is seeing this in happening in the temple. They are making a gain off of godliness. And so the idea was that these people were to come and that you had certain temple, specific temple currency that you had to have, special temple sacrifices. And so they found a way to rip people off to gain money so that you could have the approved status worship uh, in the temple. And so he overturns them and drives them out. And verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This activity that occurred on occurred, happened in the court of Gentiles. It was supposed to be a place where the nations were to come to the temple and praise and worship that the temple itself was supposed to be a missionary activity, bring the nations there. And instead of using that space for missions and bringing the nations to the, to the Lord, they were using it for their own gain as Israelites prophet and so jesus calls them den of thieves and didn't allow any more buying and selling occur that day through the temple so verse 18 the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching listen is there any accident here as to why verse 18 is stated right after 16 and 17 there is not there's not an accident here mark is bringing out the idea that this stopping of income this shutting down of using godliness for great gain is uh stopped by jesus and therefore the pharisees the scribes are hating Jesus, and they're seeking ever the more to destroy him. I want to argue to you that the ones responsible, the the Jews of that day and time, were primarily driven by money. Love of money. That same little desire that we have of, man, if I had this money then I could increase my lifestyle in some way. That little comfort that you think is no big deal, I mean, who's going to know? That same desire was driving the crucifixion process of Jesus. Notice verse 20, this parable, this story of the fig tree. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And he talks about the power of, of prayer, the power of faith that's being used in this. But I believe it's also bringing out the illustration of the Jews, the Jewish nation, which is supposed to be bearing fruit to God for their own glory, but they do not. And so it's a, par- a parable of saying they're going to die. The root is rotten. It's going to wither up. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, notice verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the temple that perhaps nez no more, buying and selling, 
The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? Why are they asking that? Because he just cleared out the temple, and they're angry. This is a prophet-centered place for them, and they're saying, What gave you the right to do that? Stop meddling with their income. Few things will get people of God angrier than talking about money. And so, let's, kind of, let's keep on reading. It's interesting to see what happens that week. That's Sunday, you remember? This authority question happened on Monday. Or the temple clearing happened on Monday. Let's see what happens all throughout this week. We read in Mark 12. Interesting dialogue that happens this week. Verse 13. The story of the, the tax collector. Of the taxes. Jesus, is it right to give taxes to Caesar? And that's one of those trick questions. It doesn't matter how you answer that, yes or no. They know that people are going to get angry because Jesus is talking about money. But notice his reply. And they're stunned. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. Don't love money. God owns these things. Use the money to help the government, if the government has say. Use the money for the kingdom of God. We'll keep on reading. Let's see what else happens that week. Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. Interesting. The last week of Jesus, he's hanging out in the temple a lot. It's what you do, Passover. But I just can't help but notice verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Why? Why was Jesus sitting by the offering box? He wasn't just hanging out. He was sitting there for the express purpose to see what people would do with worship. God pays attention to how we deal with money. So many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to them and said to them, can you get this? He said, it's almost like, Guys, guys, come here. Look at this. I got something to show you. Look what just happened. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, let me ask you this question. Did God need those little coins? I assure you, God doesn't need those little coins. God didn't need those little coins just like he didn't need those large sums by the rich people. That wasn't the point, and that's what Jesus is bringing out. It's not the amount of money that you bring into it. It's how much you leave behind. That's the question. 
And he says, she hasn't left anything behind. What do you do for those of us who are in need? And we say, you know what, if I give this amount of money, then how am I going to do this? And it became a statement for her to say, I trust in God. I don't have enough money to pay for the next meal anyway. So God is my hope. God is my hope. And Jesus, in the last week, takes note of that. Now, let's go on down to Mark 14. Again, the last week. I just want you to see how many times in the last week this question of money comes up. Verse 3 through 11. Jesus is at Bethany. This is where he tends to stay while he's near there during this week. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now this pure nard you see in verse 5, Someone in scolding her said, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scold her. What that tells us is that this perfume was about a year's worth of salary. <laughs> that's significant. So whatever your year's worth of salary is, that's what this woman just puts upon Jesus. And all it's going to do is just smell good and smell up the room. So maybe we can understand the reaction of those around her in verse 4. There are some who said to themselves indignantly. They said this to themselves, so they're not there saying this out loud. But just kind of, why was this ointment wasted like this? And, but then they did scold her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you've always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What Jesus is bringing out is that whether it's two little widows might, or whether it's a year's worth of salary, both of these have value to God for the very same reason. Whether a year's worth of salary, and you think, well, this, if we had sold this, it could have been taken care of for it. It had so many purposes. Two widows might. We can't do anything with that. And Jesus said, is, both of these have accomplished the same purposes. They adore me. They worship me. They bring out the value of who I am in their life. Let me ask you, does your finances reflect the worth of God? That's the point. Jesus is standing by in the temple looking for that very question. Does anybody's sacrifice, does anybody's giving show my great worth? And he latches on, lasers in on this widow. And then when he sees this woman who puts the alabaster flask, he says, this is good. It shows the worth of God, the worth of Christ in their life. And that's the simple question. And I've shared with, those, with you before, we don't give... Because the church needs money. That's not the reason I give. We've had good years. We've had bad years financially in our church. But when we have a bad week, I don't tell myself, 
bam, man, I need to give more. Because the need isn't the reason I give. And neither is it the abundance when we say, oh man, we have a good week. Maybe I can let go this week. That has nothing to do with it. It is all about the value of God. It is my worship. It is the worship of God that we look for. And so does the offering show the worth of God? Notice this encounter. When we start talking this way, we often turn our heart. Notice verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Why is verse 10 following that passage? No, it's not just because of the number. There's a reason why the turning of Judas's heart follows this anointing, extravagant worth put upon Jesus. Something about that, when Judas saw it, he turned his heart and said, if this is how it is, I don't want that. I don't want any part of of that. And so he starts searching in his heart to betray him. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I would present to you that one of the chief motivating sins that crucified Jesus was the love of money. It wasn't just the love of the Pharisees for money. Uh, the love of the chief priests, it was the love of his own disciples who were with Jesus, who walked with them. And it wasn't for this reason, except for that someone of his body, his church, said, I care more about this money. And if Jesus is talking this way about money, then I'm going to gladly give him up so I can get just a few days worth wage. This is troubling. As I read this. And then we find. Jesus is. Of course arrested. Brought before the council. We see in. In Mark 14 verse 53. This kind of kangaroo court. That occurs here. And it just. Reminds me. Of Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19 through 20, when the word of God says, You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, you shall not accept a bribe, for the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. And I'm thinking, here we have this kangaroo court where the cause of the righteous is subverted in the most ultimate expression, and yes, you see money involved. Jesus is ultimately beat crucified but I want to bring to you one more picture of this week we find it in Mark 15 Joseph of Arimathea one of the leaders a respected member of the council Jesus is dead is quickly coming into the holy day in which they need to bury Jesus So there would be no defilement. Read verse 43. 
Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Looking for the kingdom of God. Hold on to that phrase. Looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoned the satyr and he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the satyr that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, tombs were extremely expensive, especially this type of tomb. Most of them were pits. You just put a body in and put a rock over But this one had a lot more to it in which the whole family was planning to be buried in this tomb. He was a rich man according to other texts in the New Testament. Um, evidently a secret believer that became public after the resurrection. But he gave a tomb. And let me just present to you that tomb was no more needed than the widow's might by God. But it was a gift. It was a gift. Now, that phrase, he was himself looking for the kingdom of God. The New Testament teaches when it comes to money, you have really two options. You either seek God in his kingdom or you seek money. You can't do both at the same time. Mark chapter 4, verse 14, tells the story of the soils and the seed. Jesus tells a parable that the the word of God is like a, a seed that is thrown out into the ground. And some of it, we see that falls along the path. And Satan comes and immediately takes away the word that is sown on them. Some of them are, are sown on rocky ground and, the, and, the, and it plants up, but when it, when it gets dry, it quickly withers because there is no root. And these are the ones who hear the word of God, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root. And then when tribulation and persecution rises, they immediately fall away. But then there's others that are sown among thorns, and this kind of grows up, the seed, but then these thorns come up alongside of it, and the weeds come, and they choke it out. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You cannot love and seek the kingdom of God and at the same time love money. It's going to drive out the other one. We see this over and over again. We see this as well in the book of Mark. And you see the, the counter to this. And, or the book of Luke. You see this in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke chapter 12 verse 13 through 34. Some in the crowd said to him. Teacher. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It just sounds so human doesn't it? <laughs> He's not sharing. Or. We're trying to have an inheritance, and he's not sharing. Can you tell him to share? But he said to them, man, who made me a judge, arbitrator of you? And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produces plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to them, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? So the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat, nor about your body, or what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds, of which you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God should clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. In other words, these are what unbelievers do. They seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. Listen, now, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that you do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief broaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. A few weeks ago, I presented to you whether or not you really believe that Jesus is life. When it comes time to dying, do you really believe that Jesus is is the resurrection and your life. And my goal was to try to get from lip service to what we just say we know versus what we believe in our core. When I read this passage that I just read in Luke chapter 12 about seeking the kingdom of God and how he measures the seeking of God's kingdom with generosity, let me read that to you again. Fear not, little flock, for it is Father's good pleasure to give your kingdom. To give the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags. Do not grow old. Why? Because this is not your kingdom. You already have a kingdom. And the Father wants to give it to you as He's walking down the, the Palm Sunday and going into Jerusalem knowing He knows what's going to happen to Him. He knows that by the end of the week, the same crowd are yelling, Hosanna is going to yell, crucify him. He knows that. He sets his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. And he knows that because the Father wants to give the kingdom of God to you. And it requires a sacrifice on the cross. And he says, I'm giving you life. I'm giving you eternal life. Therefore, no longer seek your kingdom here. He's come for that purpose. And he equates us. This is how he tells us we're seeking his kingdom. When there's generosity in our life. When we are selling our possessions and giving to the ones who are in need. When there is generosity. And I'm talking about a tithe. That's just the starting point. 
Generosity goes beyond that to say, I'm going to give freely, have open hands, because the kingdom is not of this world, and I'm just going to trust God through this life. When I ask you, do you really believe that Jesus is your life? I know from this text, Luke chapter 12, 1 Timothy 6, I know that if I really want to know the answer to that question, whether you really believe it, all I've got to do is figure out what you give. You may not like that, but there's quite a few that didn't like it with Jesus either. And they're the ones that directly put Jesus on the cross for the love of money. The sad reality, and I'm just speaking in evangelicals across the country, the average is 2.8% is what we give. That percentage is lower than it was during the Great Depression. Lower than it was during the Great Depression. It's not our bank accounts that's decreased. It's our heart. The fact is, the allure of the American dream of homes, cars, luxury items, have dwarfed our hearts. And so consequently, death becomes a tragedy because our kingdom has come to an end. Listen. Listen. Jesus died for the love of money. Jesus died for the love of money that you might love the king. I'm going to say it again. Jesus died for the love of money. Directly in the times that he lived in and generally in the sins of our life. He died for the love of money so that you might love the king. And the question that comes to us is now that we know that Jesus died and rose again, and now that we know what the Word of God says, how many of us still do not love the King because we love the money? And I'm not just talking sentimentality because you don't sing songs to money, but by your life. When the Spirit of God enters into our life, And reigns. The Spirit of God does not take us down the road of money love. It is the root of all kinds of evil. Let me read verse 9 and 10 again. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that pledge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith. It's been as thorns that have come up and choked the word of God out of life and pierced themselves with many pains. Not only have we been pierced, Jesus himself was pierced. For the love of money. And I just want to speak to you as a dying person. And I want you to listen as a dying person. Please, for the love of God. Love God. 
do not love money. And I'm afraid that there's so many that are blinded because it's acceptable in American society to have these things and to strive for more comfortable things. That it's acceptable. And I'm afraid that there's going to be a rude awakening because we thought, well, you know, I believed God. I, I trusted Him, but I love God's... I, I love the money instead. And the word is pretty clear. If you don't love God, you're going to love money. And if you love money, you don't love God. You cannot have two masters. It is either God or mammon. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The implication of that is if you don't, you're going to lose it all. And so as I read this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 through 10, and we come across this phrase of love of money, and I ask myself, what on earth does that have to do with Palm Sunday? Do you see the connection? He was pierced for the love of money. And if we continue loving our own money, we will pierce ourselves And we will face our own condemnation, the judgment that we have chosen for ourselves by not loving God and seeing the greatness of who God is. Let me just bring it to you in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become Rich. I could give you this message and it might change you for a few weeks. Oh, wow, that was convicting, Pastor. Man. And you go on until the commercials and the lifestyle lures you back. I think, man, I'm glad that's over with. But I don't think that's really what God wants. God doesn't want a pastor just kind of beating you over the head about this. He wants the Spirit of God to be speaking to your life. He wants the Spirit of God to be working in you. And I'm just bringing to your attention that if the Spirit of God is working to you, it's not going to take you down the love of money. Know that. Be aware of that. And surrender it. Because Jesus loves you and he died for that love of money. And so as we are sitting here, perhaps maybe God's convicted you in some way to say, you know what, I think I would really probably do have some love of money. And these things I thought were maybe harmless, I can see actually how they brought Jesus to a cross. The beautiful thing is that as you come to the Lord and say, God, forgive me, Jesus becomes that greed, becomes that covetousness. He becomes that ease of lifestyle. He becomes that worldly kingdom. He became that and, sacri- and became and took the wrath of God for that, for you, so that you could live to his kingdom. I pray that you walk out of here this day with Jesus as your king. Joseph of Arimathea gave a tomb at great expense to Jesus who needed no tomb because he was seeking a kingdom of God. Maybe you can be like Joseph of Arimathea. It's not what is needed. It's the worth of God. Seek his kingdom. Let's pray.